Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Great Commission, what Jesus set his apostles on as he ascended from this earth, what is repeated in Acts 1.8, that they would take uh, the message that he gives them, they would receive power from on high, and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. We see this growth begin to happen in Acts 2, the 3,000 baptized and the thousands added later in subsequent chapters. We see the church's adaptation in Acts 6 where they have to add deacons to meet the service needs of the church. We see the church's scattering due to persecution in Acts 8 as, as they go and start preaching to Samaria and other places. We see Peter called to take the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts 10. We see the missionary journeys of Paul and, and that development throughout the book of Acts. But then Acts stops in Acts chapter 28. And then what happens? What comes next? What is the church to be after Acts 28 ends? What is it to be 2,000 years later? Is it to always look exactly the same as it did, act as it did, speak as it did in the first century? Or was it to grow? Was it to become something new? Was it to, to take on uh, different facets and features as it became more mature? Does the strategy of the church change from that which it originally was? Does the message or the, the tone of the message even change? Or are we supposed to be exactly what they were in the first century in perpetuity? This is the question we're going to deal with this week on Who Let the Dogma Out. Is Are we to be stuck in the first century or was the church to grow into something more? And what would it look like if it did? Welcome to Who Let the Dogma Out, where doctrine has dominion over all of life. I'm Jack Wilkie, one of your hosts, joined once again, Titus Anderson, Daniel Ma uh, Daniel Mayfield, I almost said Daniel Mathis, you guys got me messed up on the, the last oh. names thing here. <laughs> Daniel <laughs> Mayfield, <laughs> Titus Anderson, uh, here to talk about Stuck in the First Century, but first of all, how you guys doing? Uh, Titus, fresh off of EBS and a gospel meeting, so he's one tired guy. Yeah, yeah. Boy, my arm's tired, right? Just flying in. Um, yeah, I'm so glad that you almost got Daniel's name wrong. I think it's good to kind of give him a taste of his own medicine. Yeah, one of I us, right? It's, it's part yeah. of the camaraderie. <laughs> well, no. you know, <clears throat> we we gotta we gotta be able to make mistakes. No, no, nobody's perfect. As you're talking there, Jack, I'm thinking, look, if we were stuck in the first century. Did they drink coffee 2,000 years ago? Because I don't think I would want to be stuck in the first century if yeah, they did. It's true, but they also didn't have Zoom podcasts either, so... True. You know, yeah, that's a, we've come a long ways. Maybe my, maybe that's the hint, the the answer of, yeah, things were supposed to grow and change a little bit is, is one of these <laughs> these things here, but uh, Titus, go ahead. Uh, Tim, one of my favorite jokes, I mean, I, I've made this joke so many times in preaching in Bible classes of, of that question, you know, what would Paul think if we... If we brought him to the day and i'm always like well after he screams for 20 minutes just at <laughs> right. the rampant change in technology in the world and, and the seeming voodoo magic then maybe he'll have something to say but uh it is wild just to think about you know it's almost a foreign world uh completely different alien uh to the culture of the time back then uh and, and i constantly thank god i'm like glad i'm not a first century bro like i i don't know that i would have made it uh they were tough back then uh, the life that they lived, the things they did, just just amazing. Air conditioning And it's amazing alone. the disparity there is across the globe, though, because if you go, like, I just got back from Africa a few weeks ago, and there are, you know, certainly technology has been introduced, but it's like this weird quasi-ancient 
civilization the way it's always been with a little mixture like a guy will come out of his mud hut with a cell phone but he charges it like three days away by bicycle ride wow so there's like this there's this weird mixture but there are you know there still still are a lot of people that are living that way and um you know but uh, anytime anybody talks about progress they say let's let's move these let's move these people on and that, well, that, that gets us to our question of progress, and and that's a word that is a very loaded word, right? Progressivism, uh, and so we're not necessarily talking about that. And and we talk about was the church supposed to change? We're not talking about changing doctrines, adapting to the times. I know there's been people who make it to where oh, culturally they were this way. The instrument thing, the women preachers thing. Th this is a cultural change. We're not talking about any of that. I want to get that out up front when we're talking about stuck in the first century. We're talking about the church's presence in the world we're talking about the strategy we're talking about the tone of our messaging are we to preach to modern day america the way the church preached to rome are we to act as an institution and organization the way they did in in their house churches weathering the storm of persecution or are we to exercise more influence be be a little bit more in, established and so with all those questions in mind let's go back to the great commission as our, our launching off point Jesus gives them this mission. In Acts, you see them taking off on this mission. And and the question that really drove this entire episode, so this is where we'll start, is what happens if it worked? Do, mm -hmm. Did we expect it to work? And and if so, how would we... In the same way of... And I, I don't... I hate comparing... I mean, I wrote a whole book on we don't compare the church to a company, right? It's not a business. But when you're starting up a business, you've got an idea, you've got a product or whatever... You don't expect it to be in year five what it is in year one, right? I mean, there's going to be growth and change, and, and you, you start to get patterns of what's to be. Just as you see the deacons being added, that's one of those things is as they grew, oh, we need to grow into to this form or whatever. And so well, I guess I, I don't know how to ask the question, but what did we expect to come of the Great Commission? Well, speaking of that point, you know, I think, you know, one of the things we're hitting on this this episode, the episode is titled Stuck in the First Century. Jack, thank you for making the qualifier. We're not talking about getting away from doctrine. We're not talking about, you know, taking the purity of the word of God and saying, hey, we're going to we're going to come up with something new. Not at all. We're talking about what a mature church versus an infant church would look like. And when people say, hey, you know, um, you know, we need to be the first century church. We need to be the first century church. You know, sometimes the important question to ask is, well, which one? Because you read the New Testament, there were, there were, you know, there, there's obviously one church like globally, right? I mean, it's this, the established church that belongs to Jesus Christ, but you see individual churches and they seem to be at different stages of development. I mean, look at the church at Corinth. When, when, when Paul wrote to them, that was a baby church. I mean, they, they were committing sins. They were committing, they were near heresy. And then you go look at the church at Ephesus. It was a totally different thing. Like that, that church was receiving what Paul wrote to the Ephesian Christians was this super profound doctrinal treatise they had deacons, they had elders, they had, it seems when Paul was writing to Timothy, who was stationed there, that they even, you know, by this point in their development, they had a program that they developed for feeding widows and for taking care of those who didn't have. So they had grown up. And like what Paul talked about in Ephesians 4, about the church that grows up with every part working together, it's going to eventually stand and be this mature, robust unit that looks different than it did 30 years ago or 40 years ago. So I think that's the question we're after is um, even within the even within the New Testament, you see implications of a trajectory. Like you see the church going a direction and you see some of them that are kind of getting to that point and some that are stuck behind. So when we're asking what's the first century church, I don't think it's as, 
as uh, as simple as just. I think we're looking at the the Bible oversimplistically to look at the New Testament and think that it can be summarized in one one thing. Yeah, and, and the point that you made is exactly right. As far as you you hear a lot of um, people kind of beating the drum and saying we just need to be the first century church, we just need to be the first century church, and really it uh, it almost deifies that those first century Christians. Uh, as these perfect Christians, they just, they had that pure unadulterated Christianity. And as you said, when you look at the pages of the new Testament, that's obviously not the case. It was not pure and unadulterated. It was real people in real situations. And, and the reason that is going back to Jack's question about the commission is everything is so clean cut. When we do our theology in a vacuum, when we take our theology and our doctrine and we put it in a vacuum and we say, here's where we're at and this is how it's going to go. We're, we're all going to get in a room together full of people that all think the exact same way as we do from the exact same background as we do. And if we just kind of parse it out this way, it's all going to happen just perfectly in that vacuum. But unfortunately, as we can see and as Jesus knew, when you take abstract theology and you introduce it into the real world, that's going to change things. You're going to affect people that are messy and dirty. They're going to be, as as Daniel talked about, in, in various stages of development. And I think one of our sins as the church today is, again, if everything isn't perfect, crystalline, uh, to, to the T as far as our kind of echo chamber thought of how this theology should work itself out, uh, we get very leery of that. We get very afraid and and we're almost afraid to get our hands dirty and go, hey, if we go into all the world, uh, we're really going to have to go out there and get out of these four walls and, and deal with, again, some, some messy situations. And again, once that theology leaves the vacuum and it hits air, uh, right. Sometimes the results of that are surprising. And as you guys have said, you already see in the book of Acts that things are changing. You know, Peter isn't sitting around going, man, I just missed that upper room in Jerusalem. You know, some of the talks Mm -hmm. we had up there behind locked doors, man, that was great. It was just awesome. I just want to get back there. doesn't seem like anybody was saying that. They were moving forward. They kept on expanding. Um, and no one was boohooing and saying, we just have to get back to the first week church. That that first week was great. Right. Let's get back there. Well, with right. the Great Commission thing of as it grew, as it had success, exactly what you're talking about, they knew they weren't supposed to stay in that upper room. And they kept going and they kept going. And there's verses that can seem contradictory on this. You know, there is the way is, the, is narrow and, and you know, you're going to have difficulty in this world and persecution and all that. But then there is the parable of the leaven the parable of the mustard tree, that this thing, Jesus expected it to grow and have success and flourish and and be, you know, influential in the world and really be established, not be this ragtag group. And, you know, when the, um, one of the bazillion critiques of the new Star Wars movies that came out a few years ago, which officially didn't happen, but I'm going to pretend they did. You know, I'm just going to, I don't, I don't typically acknowledge them, but it makes a point here where they start off and at the end of episode six, right? They won, they destroyed Darth Vader and the Emperor, well, Darth Vader, whatever the details are, the good guys won, right? And you start episode seven and man, there's just a few ragtag rebels hanging on against, they're the resistance. Like you won. Why are you still the resistance? And it's kind of the same thing. There's this attitude of the church of it's us against Babylon. It's us against the world. It's always going to be just this. And I'm under no illusion that everybody or even the majority are going to convert. But this idea that we always have to be the boot on our throat, on death's door, 
you know the 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 fringe last people standing last ones off the the rooftop in hanoi you know that imagery that we have of the persecuted right. church what what did the mustard seed mean what did the leaven mean what what did you expect to happen when the commission went out and they they carried out this and they converted people and they they changed cities and and the gospel right. worked on people what was supposed to happen well the tri the promise of the kingdom that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. I was reading Isaiah the other day. I mean, you look at this picture of what it's saying that it will one day be is this, you know, everybody, the whole world's going to be going to the mountain of the house of the Lord and all of the nations are streaming to it and kings are bowing down to it. And you see God, you know, in Romans 13, who's saying, look, my desire and my purpose for government is that they would reward the doers of good and that they punish the doers of evil. In Timothy, you know, Timothy is Paul's telling Timothy, pray for the church that kings and all and high authorities would come to know God. And God, he says a reason for this is because God wants for people to live at peace. He does. So God does. I mean, one of the things on our outline, and maybe we'll just go into it right now, is this idea, this loser theology that we're going to, like you said, perpetually be this ragtag band of you know, quote unquote rebels, like in Star Wars, we're going to be the Han Solos of the world that are just going out in our little, um, our little craft, just barely scraping by. It doesn't seem to fit with a lot of the prophetic images. When Jesus says, look, a mustard seed, you know, it's, it starts out really small, right? Like it starts out as this little invisible thing, but it grows to be so big that it's the central feature of the garden. It's providing shade for the whole garden. The birds of the air are nesting in the garden. I mean, Jesus even goes into some lengths to say, this is something that's going to be a big feature. What would that look like? What does that mean? Are we going to always remain sort of undercover? It doesn't, you you don't really see that image in the promise of what the church would be. No, and <clears throat> when you think about, again, this theology of perpetual loserdom, one problem I have is, just kind of a failure to be self-aware enough to see. So for instance, if I'm a preacher and I'm standing before a hundred people in Tennessee, you know, which look at the map, go, go find Jerusalem and then find Tennessee on the map. And I'm standing in front of a hundred people and I'm like, man, we're perpetual losers. We're beaten down. The church is always supposed to be this splinter. I mean, look at what's happened. The fact that we even have the gospel of Jesus Christ so so geographically separated and that we have a hundred people that we're talking to again and you see these preachers standing before hundreds and even a thousand people kind of peddling this loser theology and i'm like compared to what like if you were in the right. first century looking forward to the position even the socioeconomic political position that you're in they would go oh wow the church has really grown you, you guys are doing great and they wouldn't have again I, I just have to wonder if they would look at that and go man I, I just hope it never gets there right or again that loser theology of, of Paul saying, hey, I'm literally giving my life to go out into these cities and do this. And by the way, it's not going to work. And oh, I pray to God that it doesn't work. Because the, the scariest and, and strangest thing to me is this kind of thought that success is just the total anathema of the church. Right. You know, if we have any success, right. uh, and we, I was in a Bible class that talked about this a little while back, and we were talking about the reality that we see in the Old Testament is that you have a faithful generation, and almost always the faith of that generation leads them to soaring great heights. And then the next generation, because they didn't have to work as hard, mm -hmm. because they didn't, you know, have to struggle through that almost often starts the downturn towards apostasy. So here's the right. question. Do you say, you know what? 
a good generation usually leads to apostasy. So we're not going to have another good generation. We don't want to, we don't want to reach any new heights because that just leads to danger, right? Or do you say we are going to scratch and claw and do our very best for the Lord, knowing that that the transition to the next generation is going to be difficult, but we've got to give God our best and expect that he's going to do great things through us. And so again, the, the thought that the first century church and, and that Paul and, and those that were preaching were like, oh, I pray we don't have success, right? I just pray yeah. that we never get there. It flies in the face of what we pray for. When we pray, we say, we pray that the world would come to peace. We pray that the gospel would spread across the world. We pray that those that were lost would come to the light. And then again, it goes back to that question. If it happened, what would we do? Right. We well, say, we're, oh, oblivious. I, we're oblivious to all the ways that it has happened. And, and, you know, anytime we talk about, look, the kingdom needs to advance. It needs to move on. The really what what I'm when we're speaking about the kingdom, we're saying the kingdom is those who belong to Jesus Christ. But I would expand on that, and I would say it's also the realm of influence that the people of Christ have everywhere they go, every institution that they're involved in. That's what leaven does. Like if if I'm a Christian and I'm a little piece of leaven, then if I go to school. If I go to the, like the public school where I'm a teacher, if I go to the college where I'm a professor, if I go to, you know, the engineering firm where I'm an engineer, I'm going to be leavening that place and making it more like Christ. And we're ignorant when we pretend like Christians haven't had a profound impact on the way that society is run. Like we, we, we're just born into it. We don't really think anything about it. But, you know, it wasn't that long ago that slavery was something that existed. Nobody would be arguing to say we should go back to that. Everybody would say that it's good that Christianity had the effect that it did, that we got away from slavery. Even though, look, you go into the New Testament, slavery was a reality of the New Testament. I mean, Paul spoke about it like, hey, look, this is just the way that it is. In fact, never is it said you need to get rid of it. And yet we see the implications within a Christ who gives liberty that the church would eventually get to a point or ought to eventually get to a point where it gets away from it. And look, we got to that point, right? Societally, we got to that point where we broke away from it. No, and this... now we're we're living under that. Isn't that a good thing? These are all realities of history that it did develop this way. And, and so we can look back and say, well, it shouldn't have. And you think... Is that where you want to be on this? Is that we should still be being persecuted? We should still be dragged out of our homes? We should, uh, like, that, that we're worse off that that's not happening? That there should still be slavery? They should, there should still be all these things, you know, abortion, everything else should just be rampant because that that sets the contrast between the church and the world, and and so it's not understanding that growth because again, it is there is so much about persecution in the New Testament, and it's a bottom up strategy. That is kind of the idea of the seed is you've got to fight through, and we're seeing this in Iran, in China, in, in places around the world where Christianity is growing, when it comes to right. a, a people, it has to go through great resistance and persecution and death and imprisonment and all those things, but it's not supposed to stay that way forever. In fact, we're, the, the prayer should be that the Chinese Christians spread enough and that that leaven leavens the, the, the Chinese people and the government and all that to the point to where Christianity is accepted and you can go out and evangelize in the street and it's not an issue. This idea that, man, we've got to constantly pick people up, pick people off one by one and, and uh, no, it, it develops because if you convert enough people, that influence grows and, and as you guys have both said, oh no, right. we have influence. We, we did something wrong. You know, like nobody use your influence. Nobody take your, nobody externalize your religion and so you, once you do that and you get enough people doing it, Things change, and good things happen. When you get to the end of the book of Romans, who is Paul greeting? I mean, he's got this long list of greetings. Romans 16 is just this big long list of greetings, and he says, 
greet those of Caesar's household. So the, the empire of the ancient world, like the most powerful empire that's ever existed, you know, going from Africa to um, Asia into Europe. And Christianity had infiltrated the house of Caesar where Paul's saying, give greetings to them. What would happen if Caesar became a Christian? Or if somebody, you know, in in the in the upper echelons of Roman society became a Christian, is it expected that their Christianity would remain in the church building and that it would have no effect over the policies that they administer or the well, things that if, they're doing? If Joe this Biden converted tomorrow and tore down the trans flag that they just hung from the White House the other day, right? Are we to say that's a bad thing. So that's that's the, the what you're you're left with here, and so I think this gets us a bit to our second point here is the tone of the approach of the church um and aaron wren's three worlds thing i've I've talked about before very useful for this that sometimes the world is positive to christianity sometimes it's neutral towards it right now it's negative towards it um but when we preach to rome when we preach to or in the new testament when they preach to rome when they preach to gentiles when they preach to people paul at mars hill preaching to people who had no clue who the god of israel was much less who jesus is um should our tone and and our our calls for repentance be different to an American people who knows God and has squandered that relationship with Him, and and even those that are are not, you know, born into it at all, you have some kind of knowledge just by osmosis. Is there a difference in how we should talk now versus how they spoke then? Yeah, yeah, I think I, it absolutely should be. But it's interesting that we cling to the first century persecution narrative. But we avoid everything <laughs> that would that would lend to us being persecuted. We we need to be we need to stay in this persecution model. And yet the very people that are propagating that idea, they won't say the things that will get them persecuted. So it's like a double mind going on. Sorry, Titus, go ahead. No, no, I was just gonna say again, I think we see this in the Bible. If we look in the New Testament, look at the sermons of Paul, look at the way that Jesus spoke to different people, and it becomes very obvious that. The, the the doctrines don't change. The gospel doesn't change, but the messaging has to change. It has to change. The way that God spoke to, again, the, the newborn Israel out of Egypt was one way of speaking. And yet when he spoke to them through the prophets, it's a very different kind of message because that's a people that has lived and marinated in a God-centered culture or what should have been a God-centered culture. And so when you come to the other side of that, you take off the kid gloves and you don't say, look, I know that you're babies and you're taking your first steps and that you don't understand a lot of this stuff. Uh, you know, I think there's something to be said for calling out people, especially in today. You know, you see people stand in front of a room of college students and basically say, you know, here's the truth of the gospel, and you're smart enough and you're emotionally developed enough to understand that this is true, right? It's it's apparent that the things that we're talking about here are right. And you can know in your heart of hearts that all of this sexual deviancy, all of the things that we're going towards are not good for humanity. It's not good. It's only good for your own belly and your own appetites. And so if the question comes you know, and again, the narrative that spun of like, well, we should just do what Jesus did, which is, you know, there were sinners hanging out in the courtyard and Jesus put, peeked his head around the corner and kind of whispered the gospel towards them and was going to see if they would listen. You know, 
the prophetic voice, we've got to have it. We've got to have the prophetic voice, especially today, especially in a world where people's action, it's not just a, well, you know, if someone lives this way, then then they're looking down the barrel of an eternity in hell. They're looking down the barrel of an absolutely unhappy life here. It's going to ruin their life. They're ruining themselves. If we love them, we have to be willing to speak prophetically. Well, and I and I, I kind of I want to push against one of the ideas that I think we hear a lot today, and that is exactly what you're saying, that you don't have, you know, you are not a prophet, you are not an apostle, so therefore you don't have the authority to talk like them. But in Ephesians, when Paul's talking about all of those that are going to be legislating the word of God, you know, or administering the word of God, it's a it's apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds and teachers, all of these are given the same function essentially. Now the bedrock of the church is going to be apostles, prophets. But if we are evangelists today, we're standing on top of them and we ought to be speaking from a standpoint of authority or there's not going to be any power. The other day, you know, on one front, I would say there is a sense when you read the New Testament that, look, when Paul spoke to the Jews, he spoke to them in one way. When he spoke to the pagans, he spoke to them in another way. But the difference between the way that he spoke to them wasn't a difference of boldness or authority. It was these people know the Bible. These people don't know the Bible. So I'm going to address them from what they know. But he still spoke boldly. I was listening the other day to Francis Chan. And I don't know if you guys saw this clip, but it's amazing. It, he just came out with this. He read the whole Bible in 14 days. And he said the thing that stood out to him was, he said, for, for one, it was amazing seeing the Bible unravel so quickly. But he said, I, he said, every single prophet, I kept thinking, they all sound the same. They all have the same tone. They all have the same kind of unapologetic, I'm just going to say what God wants me to say. And I really don't care what people think. He said, this was all of them. He said, you get to Jesus, he spoke the same way but it was richer and it was deeper. And then he came to the apostles and the prophets and it was all the same way. And he said, today we've kind of, we've, we've made it this thing where you have to like, you know, be, you have to really approach people. So you're not afraid that you're going to, you don't, you don't want to lose them and you want to draw them in and you want to catch them and whatever. And he's like, I don't sound like the prophets. A lot of people don't sound like the prophets. And if you look at the Bible, we should. So that that's not really going to change. Right. I think that we just we just thought of a great new book title uh, that's called "The Holy Spirit Might Be a Jerk" and and, and going <laughs> going down the line and looking for so many people that accuse people that speak in that voice of saying you're just being a jerk, you're just right. hey, you're just being mean, whatever. Yes, seasoned with salt, yes, and love, absolutely. But to talk this way, to speak so forthrightly to people lost in sin, yeah, the Holy Spirit might sound like a jerk sometimes. You're you're going to react badly to it. Uh, but at the same time, you know, redefine again, jerk, redefine jerk. Yeah, well, exactly. that's, that's always the problem is like, okay, is the problem with me or with the Holy Spirit? Probably with me, not, not with the Holy Spirit. Right. And right. with this, you know, speaking to different cultures thing, there's a, been a lot said, and I've said it myself that America is not Israel. It is not a one for one parallel. We're not God's chosen people or any of that stuff. We fully acknowledge that. However, in this context, for this particular conversation about people you're preaching to, we are closer to Israel than we are to Rome because right. of the cultural understanding of Christianity, because the roots that we have here, because the Bible is omnipresent, even even when people don't like it and don't pick it up, like there's, there's still the opportunity to know. That is starting to morph. That might change a little bit as, as Gen Z becomes the, the dominant, you know, uh, uh, generation as, as they grow to maturity and the ones after them that just 
don't know those things. In fact, uh, a, a distant cousin of mine came to worship uh, a couple weeks ago, and my brother was preaching, and, and a different cousin brought uh, the girl and, and asked her, well, what did you think of the sermon? And, you know, it was a Pride Month sermon on LGBT stuff, and she was really wrestling with it, and she's like, well, I know it's right, but, you know, uh, the gospel message stuff, she's like, I didn't know any of this. This is a kid born and raised in the Bible Belt. She says, I know more about Poseidon than I know about Jesus. And oh, so wow. we are getting to that point. However, most people over the age of 20, 25, they know yeah. who Jesus is. They, they have actively chosen to turn away from him, which makes us way more like Israel, where right. the huh. information is there and we're just walking away from it rather than people coming to it fresh like the Gentiles were. How do you preach to, to this society when you got somebody like Gavin Newsom who's running an ad campaign called Love Thy Neighbor, and it's saying, support abortions, come to, out, come to California, we'll pay for your abortions, love thy neighbor. You got somebody at, at, in, you know, at the top of our government, in one of our biggest states, who's using the words of Jesus in this way, you better be able to call that out very boldly and directly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, so let's go to the third here, and and this is a question of government. You know that that transitions us nicely is how our tone changes, how we should expect the governmental influence thing. We got to this a little bit about if Caesar converted, if Biden converted, or whatever. But one of the things that that gets missed in all of this is the first words of the Great Commission, which I didn't even read. I, I read nineteen and twenty, verse eighteen. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Mm -hmm. We should expect the outgrowth of the church to come into a different world than what we see in the Old Testament. But I think a lot of times, and I did this for a long time before really studying this, we have that cycle in the Old Testament, right? You've got the Egyptians, you've got other people that rise up, but especially towards the end, and the beasts and Daniel and all that, you've got Babylon, you've got the Medes and the Persians, you've got the Greeks, you've got the Romans, and it's this nation rises up, God uses them, they're wicked, God dispenses of them with another nation that he rose up to take them out, to take them out, to take them out, and there's this idea that it's a success... I can't get the word out of my mouth. A succession that you can draw from Rome to America, and there's another one that's going to rise up from America, and it was Rome, and it was the Ottomans, and it was Spain, and France, and England, and everybody everybody got their turn, right? And it's America's turn, and it's America's turn to fall. But you notice, when Babylon was destroyed, Babylon was destroyed. When the Medes and the Persians were destroyed, they were destroyed. When Greece was destroyed, they were, destroyed. They were subjugated to the, the, the next nation. England's not destroyed, they just faded. France isn't destroyed, they just faded. So things, number one, you can look at historically have changed, but number two, in the reign of Christ, in, in this 2,000 year period where he is on the throne, where all authority has been given to him, you would expect there to be a difference from how he, from how God manipulated and rose up and, and brought down empires in the Old Testament versus now when Jesus is on the throne. And so when we talk about the church growing to influence nations and influence governments, I think this is a part of it, is nations that accept that influence do well and they rise up and they flourish. And when they turn away from that influence, they diminish. And if, if Britain were to repent tomorrow and start going in that, that direction, they would flourish. In fact, you're seeing some of this in Europe right now. I believe it's right. Hungary and Poland and, and nations like that are going... We got this all wrong, especially the communist thing. We're never doing that again. Jesus is Lord, and we're gonna we're gonna lean into that. Right. Again, that's not a bad thing. Do you think that? I, mean, I think one of the one of the issues that I've had with the way that we have summed up the kingdom is we've said, you know, the the kingdom is the four walls of the church. Essentially, it's it's every single <laughs> baptized, you know, confessed believer. That's the kingdom. I don't I don't think that fits the bill of 
a tree that grows up and is the central feature of the whole garden. But it also doesn't fit it it also doesn't fit the bill when you see Jesus describing what his kingdom means. If he's king, he says I am the authority, the supreme authority over all of the earth. Over that that means he's not he is the authority over every institution. He's the authority over every government. He's the authority over every kind of agency that exists. He's the authority. And when you read in um, Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about, you know, at the very end of, of time, when, you know, when, when, when it's all over, he comes back and he says, <clears throat> he says, I'm going to, at that, at that day and age, I'm going to gather out of my kingdom, all evildoers. Okay. So what do you mean? Evildoers are in the kingdom. Well, they were in the, in the kingdom temporarily. There is a sense in which they were under the reign of Christ. And I would argue that this means they were living in a society in a place that was flourishing under Christ's dominion and his reign because of policies, because of ordinances, because of Christians who are in those positions. And they were just kind of existing within it, maybe on the outskirts. They may not have bowed the knee to Christ, but there was a sense in which they were in his kingdom and then they were cast out. Yeah, I think that there's a reason why this is difficult. And one of the reasons that that is that you brought up that's so true is that for years and, and all of us growing up in the church, we've heard it simplified down to writing out kingdom equal sign church. And that's right. the, how robust the kingdom theology is. And, and I've for years said, yes, it, it, in the simplified form that works, but you're going to have to extrapolate that down and really show your work on that to me, for me to know that you understand what you're saying. Um, you know, because again, that kingdom, it, the church is definitely involved, but it's much more all encompassing than that. But another reason why I think it's so hard, and I'm going to speak, you know, again, kind of speak to my own questions here and weaknesses. As I was mentioning at the start, doctrinally, a lot of this stuff is so simple. You know, doctrinally, when it comes to me going to the church that I go to versus the church down the street who has a piano, who has a woman preacher, who has all these problems, doctrinally, it's super easy for me to go to the Bible and say, okay, I get it. You know, I we're trying to follow the Bible. They're obviously off the path here, doctrinally. But historically and culturally, church history is a lot harder to parse. I've heard people get up in churches of Christ and talk about how Christianity has brought, you know, changes to medicine, changes in the way the world views slavery, changes in all of these social systems. And I want to turn around and say, yes, it did. And the majority of that happened under the watch of the Catholic Church, you know, mm -hmm. and a lot right. of this happened under the watch of people that, again, don't exactly fall in line with what we believe. And so I, I was thinking of one of my favorites. Uh, examples is uh, after Queen Elizabeth passed away last year, someone uh, brought up the the present Truman telegram to her where he said, you know, we pray that the God of all comfort will sustain you and keep you and that the King of Kings under whose ruling hand all nations serve will give you fortitude and courage, strength and wisdom to fulfill the responsibilities thrust upon you. I mean, just beautiful mm -hmm. words. But in our head, our first question goes, now, wait a second. Was he Church of Christ? Like, did he give the five steps of salvation? Right. And again, that doctrinal question is important, but I think we're wired so that we don't even know what to do with a positive social, you know, world change tone of Christianity because we're so worried about, but, you know, I, I don't know if they exactly fall in line with everything I right. agree with. And, and again, this is That's a difficult, Yeah, exactly. That's it's, 
it's difficult for me and church history is difficult for me for that reason, because I do hold fast to these doctrinal distinctives and I do hold fast to what we preach and what we believe. But again, as this goes out into the world, and I think what we've mentioned is that it gets messy and, and looking at even at the second century church, you know, we're talking about being stuck in the first century, looking back at the second century church, read some of those writings. They're men of great faith. And yet there's things that they talked about that are weird. They seem foreign to us. We go, I don't know what to do with that. And again, it just goes back to if we're going to take the kingdom seriously and we're going to look at the movement of this, how it's how it's gone, we have to be open with the fact that it's messy, right? The church right. was never this platonic um, kind of abstract idea. It's always been made up of people living in times, in cultures, making decisions based around that. And again, for someone to look at for instance, what President Truman said to Queen Elizabeth and go, yeah, but he didn't have it all exactly right. So it's mm-hmm. not worth anything. Who, What we wouldn't give to go back to that day where, well, where leaders talk that way. And, and we're, you know, we're a bit, we're a bit hypocritical on this. Like, so one of the things I've been thinking about is if you are, because, because I think what we're arguing, I think we're all on the same page here. We're saying that we ought to have Christians that are leading society. I, I would love to have a, a truly Christian president, truly Christian legislation. I mean, truly Christian legislators and governors and people that are in that are informing the policies that we live by. You start to say that and the immediate accusation is you are a Christian nationalist. And and we and again, we're stuck in this box of let the church be the church. Let the world be the world. But here's where we're hypocritical in it. The only way you're called a Christian nationalist is if you're to the right. If you're to the left, you're totally fine. There's, they're not going to say anything about that. Or so the, the two realms where we're fine with society sort of taking on a Christian flair is if it happened 100 years ago before I was born, like like the like, um, you know, the ending of slavery and, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation and. Um, you know, um, uh, women's suffrage and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's perfectly good so long as it was back then, or if you're to the left today. You say those two those two are fine. So if you get a time machine and you go in the past, you're fine. If you register Democrat or maybe Libertarian, you're fine. But if you're to the right, Christian nationalist. I, I just want to bring that out because the people the people that I see that are really having a hard time with this and, and saying that we're wrong for this, they're not even being consistent. They're being hypocrites. Well, it, it, the left, especially, you're right. It, it really, the socially acceptable causes, you know, the the race issue, BLM, CRT, all the letters that go along with all that thing. It's the New York Times advocates for it, CNN advocates for it, Hollywood advocates for it, and so it is socially acceptable for Christians to do that. And not only that, but there's pressure to do so. So they do. Same thing with so much of the COVID stuff of, you know, like getting on board with making sure everyone lines up and obedience to government in this way and not push, you know, pushing policies that go along with that, the socially acceptable ones. And like you're saying, some of these, these stronger policies are not something the society can stomach. And so, oh, that's bad. Let's not do that. Well, you get to this idea of the leaven spreading into government, into Caesar's household. And and to Titus's point earlier about where we draw church equals kingdom, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we say, well, the kingdom, well, it already came. And so that's, okay, but read the next phrase. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That right. means government's passing laws that are favorable and, and, and are in submission to Christ. Romans 13 is talking about that. And, and this is one of those, with all of this, the persecution thing, the rule of government, the influence of, of Christianity and society, 
you can look back at history and say it shouldn't have gone this way, but it did. Like all these things we've talked about of of the improvements that the church has brought, and it's the same way of well, you know, Christians should not have influence over the government. Well. If we didn't, you'd have a lot of more cannibalistic nations. You'd have a lot more child sacrifice. You'd have a lot more what they brought to the Mayans, what they brought to Europe, what they brought to, and as Titus said, a lot of this was under people who we disagree with doctrinally, but it is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the authority of Christ working into the world in this way. And and so we can't say that's a bad thing. We can't say that we shouldn't advocate for that to continue and grow today and that America would repent and get to a place where it is doing better about that uh, right the, these are just and, the natural outgrowths of christ's authority and it, i think the accusation that that we're going to get from this is that you're you are basically um enforcing christianity on other people this, that's not at all what we're doing we're, we're saying society is better run when it's running by christian principles we're not forcing people to be baptized we're not forcing people to be christians and we're not operating under the supposition or the presupposition that Christ's kingdom, you know, expanding from or, or growing to a top-down type um, situation, we're not saying that that means that this is going to um, directly save souls. But Jack, you've made the point in the past about when did the church have its its greatest growth in terms of numbers? Was it under heavy persecution, or was it during a reign of peace? Yeah, there, there uh, is. I mean, there's, there's those, you know, the revivals, the awakenings, things like that. We talked with Jacob last season a little bit about the the Constantine thing and how, you know, right. oh, it, it was just evil. It was the worst thing that ever happened to the church was that a, an emperor rose up who confessed Christianity, and you probably had some false converts in there, but you're better off. And and I've been writing on this of how much culture influences people to their beliefs and how much culture shepherds people toward or away from the church, where you've got kids being born today who go at 10 years old, actually, I'm, I'm a girl, I'm, I'm all those things. None of us had to even consider that. Why? Because right. cultural Christianity still had enough vestiges left that that wasn't even on the table. And, right. and we're not better off where kids are having to wrestle that with that. We're better off in a culture where people, and, and this is what I wrote in the article I wrote about this, it was called uh, Individualism is a Lie, if anyone's interested, um, yeah. is I wrote that my grandmother was the first Christian, the first convert in our family. She went because there was a church at the end of the street. It was a Sunday. Her friend was going. She went. She got baptized. She brought her parents back. They got baptized. Eventually, her, you know, later, as she grew up and got married, her husband got baptized. My mom got baptized. My mom converted my dad to be baptized. I'm here talking on this podcast because of cultural Christianity. There was no church on the, the end of the street for the little girl in Soviet Russia to go and start that cycle with. Right. And so when we sacrifice this and say we shouldn't fight for cultural Christianity, we shouldn't grow this influence in the world, we're saying that I shouldn't be here today. The the things that brought me about, we think that everything is individual one-to-one -one evangelism. It's really not. There are those cultural influences that are pushing you away or pushing you toward, and, and it's a bad thing that we live in this culture that is pushing every kid away from it, and we're having to drag them back the other direction. Yeah, and it's it's kind of a an affront in my mind. A lot of what you hear when people talk about again, well, you can't you can't strong arm this stuff. You have to just very much almost like can loft the gospel at them. Don't call them out on anything specific. Just loft it towards them and let the Holy Spirit do the work, and maybe they'll come to understand this. And and I've heard it again even recently in regards to people that align themselves with the LGBT plus Q plus mindset, you know, well, you, you know, don't, don't use the gospel like a beating stick on that specific issue, just kind of throw it to them and then just kind of let God take it from there. 
I find that an affront when we think about missionaries that go into places. I know several that have gone into India. They're preaching this gospel, not in a, well, I don't want to offend you all. They're preaching it to people that know if they get baptized, their Hindu husband's going to beat them and possibly murder them when they get back home. Their right. family is going to disown them. They are going to lose their job. They're going to lose their place in society. And you just say, well, think about the harm that we might do to someone in America if we preach the gospel to them and, and we, we attack their ideology and their identity. Think about the harm that comes to those people when they obey the gospel, and yet they're not sitting here crying, and we're not sitting here going, oh, I'm, I'm just worried what the, the ramifications of us preaching the gospel are going to be. We're saying right. they need the salvation of Jesus, and they're over there saying, hey, I'm willing to follow him, even if it means I die here. And so again, the coddling uh, of right. people in our society versus what we think that other societies need and other places are, are able to handle, uh, it's just wild to me. Oh, that's a great point, because you know, I think I think we're 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 making we're drawing a false conclusion when it comes to these people that are living in these like really egregious lifestyles. The, you know, the conclusion is uh, number one that if you say anything offensive, that you've been unloving. But truth is always offensive. I mean, I wrote a little bit about this the other day. Truth is always going to be offensive, and what we do is we we're not attacking. I we we need to delineate between attacking a person and attacking an ideology that is holding them captive, and there is a difference between them. We are called to bring down strongholds. We are called to destroy. I mean, that's super powerful language. Destroy arguments that are raised against the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And those arguments and those philosophies, they are people are tethered to them. They're holding people close. So one of the, I mean, we're wrong to think that offending people means you're not loving them. You have to think about that person on the day of judgment as they're standing next to you. Did you tell them the truth or did you allow them to live in their delusion? Because- yeah. One of them is going to damn them, and the other one at least provides opportunity. I don't care if you're offended. If a train's coming down, it's going to going to destroy you. I'm going to shove you out of the way as hard as I can. I don't care if that offends you or if it bruises you up a little bit. That's the point of this, right? Cutting away the old man is going to hurt a little bit. But the other thing is we're wrong to conclude that this is always going to be received offensively by them. I, was, I, I heard a story. I heard a testimony recently of a former – um, uh, transgender who'd gone all the way through with it. I mean, he just thought that this was going to be a salvation, went to the far end of it. And um, anyways, later he realized I'm just as depressed, just as, as um, empty as I was before. This did not, this salvation that was promised to me did not come. And so he found his way back to Christ in, in some general sense. And he had a friend that was talking to him saying, well, you know, what was it that I could have done prior to you're doing this. And he said, well, to be honest, there's nothing you could have done to keep me from doing it. I would have done that. And he said, but what I needed was someone to keep telling me what was uh, true and um, to keep telling me what was right. Yeah. And he said that that point of reference, when I finally got to the other end and realized this isn't salvation, that's what brought me back was that point of reference that had been granted earlier. And so that's how we show compassion. That's how we show love to our to transgender people or to confused people. Keep telling them what is right. Keep telling them what is true. And and really, we don't we don't care if it offends them. I, I that's yeah. That, that sounds callous, but I, I don't care if it offends somebody if it's well, the it, truth. It's a mindset shift, and I know the word victim is so. Uh, misused today, uh, and victimhood and perennial victim culture, that kind of thing. But 
a lot of Christians, I think, believe again when it comes to well, should we should we forward Christianity as you know the solution? They almost believe like we're we're knocking people out of this this fun lifestyle or this fulfilling lifestyle, like this mm-hmm. this same sex attraction. That's a fulfilling lifestyle for them, and we have to be very careful because they're very fulfilled and happy in this, and and we're going to be taking that away from them. When in reality, these people are victims of Satan and sin. They're victims of it. You know, they they are responsible for their actions. They're responsible for their sin. But at the same time, you know, like the person you're talking about here, he comes to the other side of this transition and goes, wow, I realize now what it's taken from me, <laughs> what right. sin has taken from me. And somebody coming around and saying, hey, sin will take everything from you. And Jesus is the answer. Suddenly that person, you're not taking a fun lifestyle away from them. You're speaking to someone who's a victim of sin and going, wow, I need to be saved. And I think about now I see videos of, you know, kids dancing under rainbows in schools, kids that, as we say, will grow up maybe knowing more about pagan gods than Jesus. And those kids, you know, I think about a young girl that grows up, she dances under the rainbow. She gets into high school. She starts exploring her sexuality. She has a girlfriend. She goes into college. She's in a series of perennial hookups with different girls. She's totally gutted emotionally. She has nothing. And she comes the other end going and preaching the gospel to her is not again, some hate speech against the lifestyle she's chosen, it's a way out. It's a way out of what the world and society has held her hand towards and allowed her to fall into that sin. And if we think that we're being loving by protecting her from the gospel, we've got it totally backwards. And that goes back to our our point about tone of when you are dealing with a, a culture that has abandoned cultural Christianity, that has abandoned reason for all of this stuff, and and you are dealing with people who are i mean kids who are just getting hit by something that they they had no clue like as as you're saying it was totally unfair the advantage they had and so what we're fighting for is fighting against that fighting to establish where future generations of kids are not going to be put with the question of well are you gay or are you straight are you a you know cis or are you trans are you all of these things you want to build things to where it's not that way and and you know government influence cultural influence all of these things that we grow into are are a big part of that and so one of the last things i want to get to here we've talked a lot about culture government all that and and we've touched on this point a little bit through it but what is the church supposed to be because this is something i wrestle with a lot i've written i wrote a whole book on what the church is to be and you're going back to what we started off at the beginning of that that ragtag rebel thing and were mm-hmm. we always supposed to be house churches were we always supposed to be and and i think there is merits to keeping our churches smaller and more mobile and and you know building a mission to where we grow out from each other and keep going and keep going. Uh, All of that aside, you look at this thing that became Christendom, where there were influences on governments, but also resulted in the university system, resulted in literacy, resulted in, I mean, essentially the printing press, resulted in hospitals, resulted in medical missions, resulted in all of these other things. And so the question is, and and I, I guess one of the, the representations of this is the cathedral itself. I mean, Notre Dame and all the, the, the incredibly fancy stuff that built took hundreds of years to build and all that money. And, and so those are kind of the two extremes of this, of maybe they went a little in excess of becoming too institutionalized, but were we supposed to always remain uninstitutionalized is the question I wrestle with. So I'm going to put it to you guys. I, I'm, I'm working through this myself. I want to hear your takes on it. It's a great question. Are there any more questions? It's <laughs> one, one of my favorite things. There's a commercial a long time ago. Son, the son asks his dad, you know, I forget what the question was. But it, was it was some really deep question. He said, good question, son. Well, 
good night. And he, <laughs> he just walks out. Do you guys remember that? So I'm, I'm with you hundred um, percent. I, my, my initial take as best as I can see this is that what we need to be doing as the church so long as we have resources and ability um, to do this, I mean, number one, we're going to be seeding society all the time with the gospel. And I do think that we need to be getting people. We, sh- we should be aiming to get the gospel to to the upper echelons of society. It should be going to our like we've got like Governor Stitt, for example. He is a uh, a, a Christian in the general sense in, in that he will publicly profess Jesus Christ. Recently, he signed into law a ban on any transgender surgery under the age of like, it's like 18 or, or, I mean, you, you, you can literally only do it in the state of Oklahoma. If you are a a complete adult, he, he put this into law. He said, we're not at a, at a time where one hospital system was considering doing this. He immediately pulled funding away and he said, no funding. Another thing that he's doing is he's saying that, um, schools, we should not put, put all of our money into the public school system. We're going to start letting the money follow the kid. So if churches want to start up private schools and wants to have institutions where we can train, we can you know um, raise people in the paideia of the Lord, he says money ought to go there. And so you hear you got somebody at the very top who's thinking with kind of this Christian worldview. The best way that I can see it is we Christians need to be doing that, and we also need to have some kind of institutions that we're establishing establishing that are running parallel to. Um, uh, to what's happening in public society. Some of the things that are happening publicly, I don't think we're going to be able to fix. Like if you try to go in there, there's just no fixing them. There is The cancer runs so deep in these institutions, we can't fix it. But we should be, I think Christians should be starting schools. I think that we should be looking down the line and seeing, okay, look, we see where the public school system's going. We see where it already is. We see what it's already done. We see where it's going. We should be thinking about we're going to start our own school and we're going to in our community, like we need to think on the local level. I think we need to look like in your small town, say, here's where we're going to focus. I'm not going to focus all my attention on who's president. We're going to do stuff right here in our town on the local level. We're going to train our people. We're going to start a school. We're going to have Christian businessmen, whatever. I mean, that's. I, that's, I don't know if that answers a question at all. That's just kind of where my thinking is. It does. I'm going to cross-examine a bit to make you go a little deeper. You say Christians should start schools. I think lots of people would agree with that, but should churches start schools? That'd be the one where people would quibble 100%. over more. That, I think so, that's the only way to safeguard. Okay, just wanted to clarify I, I think that's there. the only way to safeguard it theologically. Like if you get a school, because I've seen this, where um, some Christians went and started a school, but it was detached from uh, uh, church. Well, if it's not under the pastoral care and leadership and spiritual guidance of the spiritual heads of that local congregation, it ha- it runs the same risk. Yeah, I mean, the risk is always there, but it runs a greater risk of going uh, in the wrong direction because there's nobody that's really overseeing it. I- I've seen this happen. I mean, I know it personally, and I think that um, churches should do this. I mean, it's not going to be called the church, but it's going to be overseen by the church. It's going to be under an eldership. It's going to be um, under the teaching and the direction and the creed, uh, if you guys will allow me to say that, because I think, you know, oh uh, the creed of that church um, and uh, or the doctrinal statement or the beliefs, whatever. 
I think it absolutely needs to be under the church if it's going to have this the kind of success and protection that we're wanting for it to have. I think that, you know, that, that was beautifully said. Going back to the question about how does the church shift from house church to cathedral, the, the place in between, just a couple of thoughts. One, when it comes to the institutionalization, if I can say that, uh, of the church, I, I want to think about Old Testament Israel. There's a common thought that I've heard so many people say, they get to 1 Samuel and they preach a sermon and they say, look, Israel was never supposed to have a king. They they begged for this king uh, and they asked for it for themselves. And, and all this trouble came from it. And Samuel warned them, God told you to never, you were never supposed to have a king. And it sounds really good, but then go back to the law of Moses. And the, the law of Moses says, hey, when you get into the land, when I plant you on my holy mountain, when you have a king, here's how I want him to act. Here's He's going to make his own copy of the law of Moses that he's going to write down and read it. He's going to go through all these things. And what becomes very apparent is Israel was not supposed to remain a nomadic society. You think yeah. that, again, they're supposed to stay nomads, they're supposed to stay in these tents. God had a trajectory for them, and that was his design, and it wasn't like God saying, oh, you people want progress. I'm going to give you progress. Fine. You know, it, it's kind of the anathema, but sure, here you go. He commanded the building of the temple, and I, again, I hear so much bad Old Testament theology about they were never supposed to have a king. Well, God didn't really want the temple. God gave the mm-hmm. dimensions for the temple and commands regarding it, you know, to, to right. Solomon. And so when it comes to the house churches versus the cathedrals, one thing that I think is helpful, because again, we said there's these two ditches on either side, but your um, your standard, your uh, pragmatic church building is somebody else's opulence. When I see pictures of church buildings over in India that are, again are, I mean, we, we send money over to build them and they are bare bones. Okay. They are a bare bones place. Right. If they came to my church building, they would go, could not the Lord's money have been used to feed the poor and to help the widow instead of building this building. And yet we, in our building, we look at, again, a faithful congregation in the next County over that maybe they have more people than us. Maybe they build a great new facility and we go, wow, look at them. They're, they're wanting to build the next big cathedral. And I think again, what you you come to find out is it, we should be slow to judgment on if a church does build a new building and they make it nice and it, it's something that people would want to come and look at. Again, I'm, I'm not a fan of the warehouse churches. I would rather you build a cathedral than a warehouse. Yeah. But at the same time, be slow to judgment. You know, again, throughout history, I'm sure there were always people that were saying, well, should we really do this? Should we really spend the Lord's money on this? But the majority of people say, look, here's where we're at societally. Here's where we're at in our need for the community. And so again, if the church has to constantly be shackled to this, we're getting too big, you know, maybe we should split back up into our houses, then we're we're constantly going to be held back and distracted from doing the actual work that God has commanded us to do. They were building for the generations. Like they were looking down the line. They actually were thinking we want there to be something in a thousand years. And that's not really our thinking at all. Our thinking is, you know, Jesus is coming tomorrow. So let's all hunker down. Jesus hasn't come for 2000 years. What if he doesn't come for another 2000 years? Like, Mm -hmm. how does that change our building mentality of what we're going to put into place infrastructurally? And we need they, the people that were building the cathedrals. I think we would all say that they went too far. I mean, they're gorgeous. They, it's all gold. I mean, they're beautiful. But look, one thing you can say is those buildings are here a thousand years later. I went over to Strasbourg. Of no- There's two Notre Dames, by the way, in France. And I went there. I went to Strasbourg and I saw the Notre Dame. It's one of the most glorious buildings I've ever seen. It was built like a thousand years ago. It's still there. Those people at least had this idea of we want something there. I think our, our idea is 
I really don't care about the next generation. It's just me getting through this and then whatever they inherit, whatever they receive, whatever. Yeah. And, Obvious, yeah. Obviously, we're not pedo baptists We don't baptize our kids and say, hey, our kids are going right into the church. But I think at least we owe it to ourselves in the church to have this mindset, not of, well, hey, we'll build a building out of cardboard and we'll give our all to Jesus. And then when my kids come, boy, I hope they'll be faithful to God. Boy, I hope they'll they'll be good. I'm, you know, with my sons, I'm going to start telling them, look, Silas, look, Mathis, you're the reason you're here is to serve God. In our family, we serve God and, and we're part of Jesus's church. And this is what we're going to do. If they decide to leave that, that's fine. But again, the, your your statement is so great on planning for this to last, planning that, hey, where I go to church now, people are going to be here t- 200 years from now if I have anything to say about it. They're going to be worshiping God right here, and I'm going to live my life so that, again, I leave a legacy, I leave mm-hmm. an inheritance of faith for them to take up, and if they squander it, so be it. But I'm going to have every expectation that what God has started in us, he began a good work, he's faithful to complete it until the day comes. For sure. Yeah, I'm... I, I'm... I I guess notoriously wary of building centric Christianity, and so it's one of those that I do think it was supposed to grow into a an influential institution more than you know again the ragtag bunch that meets with twelve people in a house in a living room and and you know always wanting to be that uh, you know versus becoming the building where that's where church happens and we leave it there and and so there's got to be a balance there and and maybe it is in these works that that we take up of influence of of education of benevolence of of whatever it is that we're doing from there uh i don't know i i struggle with what that looks like in practical terms but it is just that another facet of this stuck in the first century question of you know, as we said, they started out in the upper room. There's a reason we don't all travel to Jerusalem every Sunday to go meet in an upper room. Like, <laughs> yeah. it was supposed to change and morph and, and grow and, and get more established and all that. And so uh, it's been a very interesting thought experiment. This is one uh, I brought to the table uh, because I, I just, I racked my brain with, as I said a, a few episodes ago, ecclesiology, what the church is supposed to be in connection with culture and, and all of that is the stuff I just lay in bed about at night and think about and so, or lay in bed and think about at night. And so I uh, appreciate these guys uh, entertaining the conversation. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff here. Um, I know we've got some folks who are going to disagree with parts of it. I'm happy to hear uh, the disagreements. Um, if, if you agree, let us know on that as well. Uh, any comments or questions, as always, YouTube, Facebook, we are around. We keep an eye on those. Uh, do you guys have anything to add? Did, did we right. just write your next book for you, Jack? Is that... You know, we're getting there. Well, that was the Creeds and Confessions <laughs> one, so now I've okay, got two, gotcha. two in the bag. Um, okay, sweet. Yep. Uh, what was I going to say? Next episode will be episode six. We'll be halfway through season two, so uh, just really enjoying it. Appreciate these guys. Appreciate everybody listening, and we'll talk to you next week.